little preamble. <clears throat> Sometimes things come to me to say before I open up the quest to questions, and um, <clears throat> I would just like to say that now, if I could. <clears throat> so um, prior uh, to uh, moments of awakening, there is a growing sense of us in awakening values. That is, the values that once awakened are um, completely obvious to us. Uh, but there are also heart values which uh, have a growing sense of propriety in our life, of importance in our life, prior to those moments of awakening. And I call those awakened values. And they're values like honesty, integrity, uh, love, truth, inclusiveness, uh, that, those values. Now, the best way to walk the practice <clears throat> from one paradigm to another is to take those awakened values and start bringing them into your life and embodying them as actions. So let us say that an important value to you might be uh, truth. Well, then you just commit yourself to walking the path of awakening down the lane of truth so that you really hold yourself to what it means to be truthful about oneself, about one's expressions to each other, but not unkind. Sometimes truth can be unkind if it's untimely. And so the Buddha said, no, don't just say what is true, but say what is true and useful, what's helpful to that person to hear, and that may not be in your timing. It may be in their timing. So you want to get a sense of what they can hear and how much of the truth you want to share. So it's not just saying what is true, but also taking in the person who you're saying that to in consideration. Right? But as you do that, as you move it, you actually move down the pathway uh, out of the paradigm of separation, even though it may not feel like any more, uh, any greater sense of interconnection, there is in just employing truth for truth's sake. Okay? And each one of you have values that you hold very dear to yourself, very, very close to you, like love. <clears throat> We've all been practicing metta. And so you can just say, okay, love in action is kindness. I'm just going to look. First, I'm going to notice kindness whenever it arises in me and when I actually act from it so that I begin to recognize myself as a kind person. But then I'm going to look for new opportunities to express that to broaden the category of kind acts that I do. And those walk us down the path towards awakenings just by following those simple values. That's the, those are the road signs. That's the, the strip in the middle of the road, the yellow dotted line that just, okay, this, this, goes, this, this goes in the direction I want, to, I want to go. Now we live in a time uh, that's very confusing to these awakened values. It feels like an awakened value politically now, to uh, be contemptuous and in conflict and argumentative and not listen to the other person. And you can perform those principles of political values if you so wish, but they are not awakened values. And they will walk you back towards yourself, basically. And you may be pounding the table and how sure you are that your political party is right. But that's not an awakened value. Rightness, righteousness, opinionation is not awakened value. And so you need to stop. We all need to stop and say, is this, is this the direction I really want my life to take? And if it's not, then we need to march it in a different direction, despite what comes at us. There's only one way to do this thing. 
so given the conflict and the contentiousness, the argumentation, the rage that many of us feel, there's still only one way, and that's the way of kindness. Now, kindness doesn't look like a way to vote. You vote in the way that your heart directs you. You may go to political events and demonstrate and do whatever you need to do. But it's not in conflict. It's not in exclusivity. It's not one party versus another. And my fear is that we're, we think we're on the righteous side, whatever side you might be thinking from, and opinions, all opinions are equal. There is no right side. So if you want to walk it that way, just know you're, you're going against awakening. You're walking it backward. And I, I'm bringing that up now because I want you to sit with it for a while within a retreat setting because I see it as a crisis point for those who think they're so right in their attitude, their political attitudes, and what's happening to us, and we all have to, all of that stuff. It has nothing to do with quiet. It has nothing to do with awareness. Is this what I want my life to be about? Impeachment? Whatever is on your... Is that truth? Is that honesty? It feels good, so it must be something. Okay. So now I want to open it up to questions, not around that particular subject, but anything. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, is there love for this too? Is there love for this too? Yeah, right. That's a beautiful phrase. It isn't mine. It's borrowed from someone else. Um, but it's um, it's a beautiful phrase of inclusion. When we to bring up when we're uh, when we feel we're in the midst of some. Well, I mean, just what I was saying. It can, you know, is there love for the other side? Is there love for that too? Is there love for that expression of life? Okay, let's get something straight here. The Buddhists did not say Hillary Clinton was going to win. <laughs> okay? The Buddhists said their changes are going to be, there are going to be a lot of conditional changes. And we are to adjust and accommodate the changes of environment, the changes that are occurring. And within that, we still walk it in a single direction. Despite what conditions come and go, conditions come and go. Sometimes it's the party we choose, sometimes it's the party we don't. Sometimes the person is this, sometimes the person is that. Something deeper in us needs to be nurtured sufficiently so that we operate in accordance to that directive, that simplicity of just basic goodness. And we think, well, you know, our righteousness will defeat that, but it doesn't work that way. You don't, you don't win forever, no matter who wins. The tables turn. Okay. Yes? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, inquiry and contemplation. Inquiry, uh, both of them use uh, thought, uh, compatibility of thought and awareness and kind of a symbiotic relationship. <clears throat> contemplation I talked about today, and it's more, it's more uh, 
just seeing the nature of it, letting some subject like death settle with you. And uh, we just, we just want to see what that, where that subject brings us, what it does to us, and also uh, where it guides our attention. Uh, so I, I lived with that subject for many years in hospice care, and uh, it took me through a whole series of different f- uh, phases of what death means. At first, the contemplation was, you know, that it's happening to me because it really felt very personal. <laughs> And that brought its own fear and its own uh, sense of resistance to the uh, subject. Uh, But I was practiced enough to know not to stop there. So I just kept bringing the subject into a reflective kind. Just what is is death? What, What does it mean to die? And then just... So then it... Very naturally, not for my direction, that contemplation started showing me how death is everywhere. And that it's not within just the families that I was working with in hospice care, but it was showing me it's a universal attribute of life. And uh, so I saw death everywhere. And so it wasn't so personal anymore. And then from that very natural contemplation came an inquiry. And an inquiry is a very deeper, penetrating uh, questioning into the very subject itself. Like, what is death? Now, at that point, a simple contemplation will show you what you're up against and show you the layout of it. But inquiry is a kind of more, more penetrating uh, approach to the subject itself. And again, inquiry starts with a question. A, a thought in the mind, like, what is death? And then it's followed by silence as one's attention moves into the, the physicality of the experience of the question. So you might go into a cellular, a cellular or sensational approach where you're seeing death within sensations, or it could go very deeply into what an absolute ending is. Or it could ask the question from there, who dies? <clears throat> if, I, if, I gotta, if I'm going to die, I should know <laughs> what, what is it that's going to die? Who's the who that's going to face this thing? And so then there's a deeper inquiry that the first inquiry led to, at least into a deeper inquiry of the nature of oneself, you see? And then... On and on. So it's like that. So death is a more penetrating, I mean, inquiry is a more penetrating uh, unfoldment of a particular uh, concern you might have. Whereas the contemplation is more like, what's universal? What does death mean? What is death? Just show it to me. Start showing it to me. It's more open like this. What is What is death in relationship to life? And again, it's not that you're following a storyline, or you may read, but it would be just to supplement the, compl- the, uh, the contemplative part of it. So it's not wordy at all. Neither one of these is wordy. Uh, and it, but it drives the level of attention under the surface so that you begin to really uncover uh, the, the uh, deeper questions that are held by that particular event. I remember when I was a monk, I mean, I, I didn't, no one told me how to do this. I, I just somehow knew, and I don't know how, but I would do walking meditation, and I would just have, I would just have a, a, a question that came up somehow. Like, well, I remember one of them saying, you know, what is ignorance? I mean, and then my mind would give the easy answers, you know, it's, it's where you're not looking, it's, being unconscious. I wasn't accepting any of that because all that was just philosophy or a quick answer. And I just wasn't listening to that. I wanted to know directly what ignorance was. I wanted to see it. I wanted to realize it. You see, that's a very different directive than just being intellectually satisfied. 
So I, we, I would take something like that, and I, and I would be very patient with it. And that was key, and I don't know why, because I'm not a patient person. But I was very patient with my questions. And I remember in this particular question, I was just, you know, you just you have it going, but you don't force it, force it, force it all day long. You just let it float in and out. What is ignorance? It's a kind of um, scratch or itch that you can't scratch. And, and I was patient because I know how it unfolded. But once you sincerely ask a question like that, the answer comes up in its own time. And I remember walking in and I went, oh, I know what ignorance is. I saw it. And then that goes away, and, you, and then very naturally in the course of one's practice, another question arises, like whatever the question is. And the same thing unfolds. There, you will never be denied the answer. I never was denied the answer. Wherever I wanted to look, it was shown to me if I was looking sincerely. Uh, and it was just amazing to me. It was like, uh, at some point, the image that came to mind was one of those darkened stadiums where you're like a rock band and people are taking flashlight, or not flashlight, but photos of you and there's the flashes are going off all over. The, that's how the insights were coming. They're coming like, like that. Wherever I turn my mind, there would be an insight. And they all, you know, they don't stay linear. They go this way and that way, and that hooks up to that, and that shows you this, and then you get that. And it, like, all makes us mosaic of, of what the Dharma is. And it's all of these, it's really quite amazing. And, of course, each insight has its own elevated mood of, like, whoa, like that kind of... So I was whoaing myself for... <laughs> for some time there. It's quite, uh, it's quite rich. It can be quite rich. If you learn how to ask the questions and learn how to stay within the flavor of that. Yeah. yeah. You talked a few days ago about um, staying with the trajectory of the practice as you're teaching, taking us towards truth. I want to see if you could talk more about truth as moving the practice that way. Um, to talk more about truth. So, uh, what is true? As a trajectory of practice. Oh, yeah. okay. You heard that. You were talking about that. Yeah, I was talking about that? <laughs> <laughs> what did I say? <laughs> uh, Right. I mean, um, I, I don't want to talk about the truth because, I mean, that's, a, that's often a conditional, I mean, it's true in some circumstances and not true, you know, I want to, if you want to see the truth as opposed to the faults of what we are as human beings or what something is, it starts out, uh, you know, that you think an object is what you say it is. And you take that as the truth of that object. And then as you practice more, you see that that object is being created uh, from your memory and projected memory onto that thing. And that's why it holds what you say it is. And so that the old truth that it is that becomes the false, the new false, right? And the new truth is that it isn't what you say it is, but you can still use it as you say it is, right? So as you take that down um, to the more refined levels, uh, you see that it's nothing. It's empty. Uh, And that becomes the new truth. And the false was everything you believed prior to that, right? So that the truth of what life is changes dependent upon the depth of your questioning. One's self, the same. One of the 
uh, one the level of that that was very important for me to see was to realize that as I under uh, as I uncovered the truth of objects, I also was uncovering the truth of myself because myself as an object was composed of exactly the same assumptions. And so I saw myself peeling the layers off as I was questioning what the objects of the world were. And I also saw that as I came back and allowed those, that peeling to reform, so did the objects of the world. So that the sense of I and the sense of objects were contingent upon each other. Uh, and that's very important uh, because we don't necessarily realize how what we say to the object about the object is really the sense of self is, that is saying it. The memory that we place on the object is coming from me. And so it's reflecting back what I say it is as my me and the memory I have of it. And that's what holds me together as a three-dimensional object is everything that I know about the world and the more I know the more solidified I am within it. And as I begin to question what I know about the world into you know in, uh, to a sense of not knowing well that then I move in relationship to that same inquiry where I become something not known. Does that make sense? To you? Yeah. So again I, I'm bringing these up not as um, the only way to inquire because you have to develop your own pattern and what's interesting to you but that the process of inquiring the process of asking questions below just what your uh, meditation practice is showing because realizing the truth depends upon your intention to realize the truth it just doesn't for most people it just doesn't pop open it pops open because you want to see it. And that wanting to see it is, is the ongoing questions that arise naturally from the relationship with whatever it is that you're inquiring. Is it what is going on? Like when, you're, when you feel that you want to move into the difficult because you see that where the difficult lies and you're not looking is unconscious and that that is going to create a whole storyline that's unknown to us unless we face the difficult and can get to know that storyline and thereby release that pattern within us. You go, when you feel something not right in you, like you're avoiding something, or you just feel it and you go, what's going on there? And that starts an inquiry that marches us through those levels of shielding that we have protected from whatever it is that we discover, whatever pattern or whatever avoidance or whatever denial that might be occurring. For instance, when I was before I got involved in death, with death, as an inquiry, I was um, scared to death of it. I mean, I saw it. I was, I was a monk. And I got the book, uh, Who Dies? Uh, Stephen Levine's book, and I started reading it, I thought, geez, I've got to learn about it. You see, I, I felt the aversion to it, the subject because I, I was young and distant from it. And I thought, oh, I've got, to, I've got to go into this. I knew immediately from my reaction of avoidance that it was, I had to take it on. And then I got very interested in it because as I took it on, worlds were divulged. You know, I really saw um, much more than I had counted on seeing. And uh, so what opens to you is far beyond what you th- think uh, will. And it's quite, quite extraordinary. Yes, sir.
Um, Yeah, the layers are actual experiences of yourself. The question, ha- I think, uh, has to do with uh, you know when you're asking these questions and there are different layers. Uh, is that a, are you imagining that or is what what where does that where do those layers come from? Is that yeah. So does it get assimilated into a larger awareness? It gets assimilated into wisdom. Once you, you see, the, the key to all of this is realization, not ponderance or intellectual satisfaction. If I wanted to intellectually satisfy myself, I'd just read about death. And I remember at the exact moment of my inquiry where I realized I was going to die and it was not abstract. And I thought, oh, that is realization that uh, death is imminent. That was it. Just hit me, you know. And uh, uh, so, it's it's a layer of protection. <clears throat> there, it goes through a layer of protection or a layer of denial. The realization component. And like, if you're looking at an object and you want to know what that is, well, what what are your assumptions about it? What do you see it as as an experience? Well, I see it as a pillow. Like pillowness was in it, right? So I said, okay, where is that pillowness coming from? Well, it's my memory. I mean, it's real clear that when you see it, it can't be coming from it because it's not a pillow. It doesn't know pillow from. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's coming from, right? And then as you, as you keep under, okay, so how did I ever form that? Well, meditate, you know, you have a memory associated with what you needed and a feeling tone of liking or not liking pillow. All of that led sequentially to the res- resolution of it being called a pillow and the memory of all the pillows that have helped me along the way. And now when I see it, I see it as that corridor of history really uh, and so I know it's not that I know that's coming from a projection of my mind onto that where else could it be coming from and the, again the Buddha's uh, dependent origination provides the links that allow you to realize each link in relationship to the next so that it never comes back in the same way uh, once that has been explored and, and known to you. Right? So I can't really, it's hard, like realization is a cellular, it's not intellectual. Intellectual is, it, those of us who got involved in spirituality and it was fun and you read all about it and the reading of it was exciting and that was great, but it only lasted so long. Why? Because you weren't being touched by it. Not really. But when you start practicing, when you start, you know, making impermanence a physical certainty, when you see it as what's actually occurring rather than a concept between yourself to protect yourself from impermanence, it gets in in a different way. And there will be this, oh, wow, impermanence. It's like this snapping the fingers, realize, whoa. This is everywhere, you know, and that is what moves the practice forward. Two nights ago you talked about um, stages going forth, and you talked about three stages. And you talked about the second stage, whereby time and distance gets collapsed. Um, can you say more about that? Or, and are there signposts along the way to that? Yes, there, is, there are timeposts, and it's your interest in asking questions just like what you did. If you don't have any interest in the subject, or you're, trying to, you're, you're kind of far from it. <laughs> so it starts out, <clears throat> starts out as interest. It's like, 
I'm, I want to get that. You know, you, you feel yourself leaning into the subject because you really want to know it. And that's the same thing that brings the resolution of inquiry or contemplation. That is not going to be denied to you, but it's not going to be offered to you either until you're interested, right? So once you start lining up, lining up in accordance to your deepest yearning, then uh, the world starts opening in accordance to that, or else it just stays um, colored by the entrapped ways that we want it to be, pleasure, pain, whatever. I mean, when we look at it sort of topographically, just in terms of surface, it's, that's what our mind wants in this moment. It wants the pretty woman and that, and I want that, and I want that, and I want the, that food. It's all sectioned out in terms of pleasure and pain and approach and avoidance. And you can stay at that level, but that level is so trauma, trauma-ridden. There's so much a struggle within it that soon you you have to face the struggle. It's not about the object that gave you that struggle. You gave yourself the struggle by labeling that object as being pleasurable and then pursuing it and finding out it wasn't what you wanted. And we continually blame the fact that it wasn't what we wanted on the object. I'll just find a better object, a better mate, a better house, a better job, a better... And at some point, it (laughs) dawns on us. At some point, it dawns on us, you know, that that's, that's just the way I'm seeing the world. That it can't help but cause pain. It can't help but... I can't help but struggle at it when I see the world in that way. And then we're willing to settle out beyond that particular superficial level to see it with more depth. And then that takes us to more subtle levels of struggle. But that level of struggle has gets alleviated to some degree. So uh, as these things get quieter, because we've struggled enough where divesting our interest on the, the level of appearance, then our consciousness moves to the more subtle level. And when it does that, it gets quieter because the most noisy level is the level of appearance. After that, it, each succeeding level is a quieter level. And because quietude determines me, my, uh, my embodied sense of self, I get quieter too. And as I get quieter and quieter and quieter, so that I don't want, I want to know what is going on and I'm interested, and that interest is itself quiet, uh, the paradigm shifts. It shifts because of quietude. It doesn't shift because of your will or want or struggles. And as, as we begin to see how this thing, you know, it's like one of those uh, kaleidoscope. Yeah, and it's, whoa, yeah, yeah. So <clears throat> the paradigm shifts at a particular level of interaction, you know, where you're not calling things thing, things and you're not even interested in things as being separate. What's now got you is your heart, and how your heart has become a guide for your whole life. Because you want to, you're seeing more inclusively. You're seeing more one with oneness of things. There's a sense now, because you're quieter, that you're, you've gone many levels down, and your very perceptions are are changing as well as your awakened values are also changing. It's not so much greeting, grasping now, it's, it is this tenderness and patience and reaching your hand out to those in need and that's why the whole thing shifts to all beings is because it doesn't make sense not to. And you're beginning to see that kind of inclusivity. So at some point in that, uh, you step out of yourself because yourself is too intrusive to continue the process that is now dominating your life and you want to yield to it. 
you don't do it in order to, it just tur- does it on its own. It turns at a certain level of stillness to stillness itself. Now stillness is not a conditioned phenomena. It's absolutely still. <coughs> Quiet. It has no movement in it. It holds all movement, but it itself doesn't move. And we call that awareness. We call it whatever labels we want to put on it. Formless, formlessness. But no longer is our life about the adherence to form now. It's about really... It becomes mysterious because formlessness is mysterious. So you become mysterious to yourself. But then the, from that mysteriousness, there's wonder. It's not like I'm afraid of it because I don't know it anymore. That level of thinking is long since gone. And you're just resting in a kind of unknown spirit of, in the, in the beauty of that. I mean, it's really beautiful not to know something. And it opens the whole thing up into wonder. You know, wonder is what a lot of us want. When, when you're told a mystery story, you're like, you know, you know, or something magical. I could tell you some hospice stories that would get you like, wow, like that. Why? Because it's wondrous. It's not in the normal plane of operations on this. So that begins, you begin to see that everywhere. And so that's no longer affixed to the same rules that this plane of object, subject, object is. And so you can, there's a lot of play in that, a lot of magic in that. That's, you know, a lot of um, shamanism, and they're all playing in that level of wonder. <clears throat> and, uh, I don't know, on and on. Uh, so, what one day, what happens is that your identity is no longer in mind and body at that point. It's in the wonder itself. It's, it's not formed as an identity as such. It's formed as the infinite that has no time. No time. No, I mean, if okay. It's not that hard to get us into this. In fact, I was going to do this at another time, but I'll have to do it at another retreat. Just for the moment, to no, realize that the moment, this moment is all we have. It, there's not another time frame. There's only now. I mean, that's not hard for any of us to do. It just, well, yeah, of course. So where does the sense of time come from? Is it intrinsic to the moment or is it something I bring to the moment? Well, you begin to realize that it's the thoughts I have about the moment, usually that I'm in disagreement with the moment, and that I think there's an alternative moment I could go to that would allow me to have a better moment. And that is very strong in the mind because I remember better moments than this one. So why should I settle for this? You see? <laughs> okay. So there's a huge argument going on there. And you're, we're arguing with reality. We're saying reality this is it's just not showing up in the way I want it to. And this is all day long. <laughs> so, <clears throat> at some point, you see the ridiculousness of, of that. And you just, you stop generating time within now. And guess what happens now? It changes to awareness. Because the only missing link in the moment that we were infusing in it was time. Thought. The possibility that it could be something else, something better. And the hope that it would, and the expectations of it doing that, and on and on. But when it quiets down, it reforms itself. Now, this gets really interesting, Objects have to also reform because objects hold time. Just as I was saying to you, I remember that from previously setting on whatever. And so when I light upon that, time is one of the expressions of of my perception of it. Right? And so 
if I'm going to be still and not be in, engulfed in time, I have to take the recognition out of the perception. I spoke about this. So now it's, it can be a pillow if I want it. It's not like it goes away forever and I can't find a pillow to sit on. <laughs> it just doesn't litter the, the now with an, as an object. It's, it goes quiet. And so what you begin to see is that the moment is, are not the things that fill it, but it's the things that hold it. So, and as we, as we pursue that level of inquiry, it's a really good one because it's so obvious, you know, I mean, especially to a meditator, you know where time's coming from. It's not... Even scientists don't understand time. You know, they think, you know there's as much logic in science for time to go backward as forward? Okay, so now the now is no longer littered with reminders of the past or future, and it's dead stop. And as that dead stop dead stops, and the fly, the film of self, which gets, whoa, what's, whoa, that kind of fly on the wall self, that's kind of amazed at all, (laughs) quiets down a little bit, it changes again. It changes from awareness that holds objects because, oh, the awareness that holds objects is still different than the objects themselves. Even though the objects are being drained of their recognition, at some point that draining of the recognition, you recognize the absolute emptiness of all things, including the objects you once thought were something, and yourself follows suit, and so there's a, a, a harmonic a harmony of perception where it's all of the same essence. doesn't mean you see everything homogenized and it all looks like, you know, it doesn't homogenize out. It just, the sp- it's so hard to, the space and the objects are not separate from one another. In fact, I, I was going to, I had a, a Buddhist quote, I think I left it upstairs, but it's in the uh, Sutta Napata, like chap, one of the chapter eights of it, where the Buddha says, it's not ordinary perception, and it's not disordered perception, and it's not the annihilation of perception. So he, he talks about what it is by what it's not because you can't say what it is. It doesn't hold anything. But you keep it, well, is, is it ordinary? No, it's not, un, uh, it's not un, abnormal, unusual. It's unusual. It's not whatever I just said. I can't even remember what I said. It's, it's, it's not. It's not. And then there is the loss of identity. Some of you may have stumbled your way into that at some point, where the subject-object relationship, once there is no object, there is no subject. And the perceptions, perception ends. And that's what I was saying in the beginning. We are all avoiding that. We don't want that. We love the unity and the, you know, the oneness of things and God consciousness and the sense of everything being perfect. 
because all of those are different levels of consciousness. There's a whole array of levels of consciousness. But the one that we don't want is the one that doesn't hold us at all. (laughs) And uh, so it's really interesting because I I realized that the word avoid is based upon just that concept, that understanding, to stay away from the void. And that we use that... uh, even on, you know, that's not where we want to go because what, what good is that? You know, what, how does that help? It doesn't. It doesn't. There's no, um, you don't get anything from that. There's no prize associated with that one. The only reason you would go there at all, ever, is because it's the truth. And you're driven by what is true. If you are driven by what is true. So, the end of the search, really, is the end of identity. And it said, as I mentioned, uh, that over time, as one... uh, This is how I understand it, not how I've experienced it. Over time, as the sense of identity in all aspects of all different consciousnesses just are not infused with a lot of energy and are just let to die within its own realm of understanding, a slow death, and I have experienced this, there is a, a background void that follows one into all interactions. So there's this sense of the proximity of voidness. And it's... And the sense of self is just a, a very thin screen that allows life to continue functionally. While the ground of our being, the basis of our being, the foundation of our being, is the dark void. And at some point, one loses one's identity, it is said, entirely. So there's just that. I don't know. Now, for those of who would like to leave the retreat, because <laughs> that's not where you want to go. <laughs> but I always think it's good to hear it, because some of you, a few of you, I am interested. I, if that's the truth, that's okay. I'm, I'm, let's go. I don't care whether I'm around or not. If the truth of it is that I lose any sense of myself, that's just fine with me. <laughs> that sounds weird. <laughs> sounds like, sounds like well, he's, he's got a self-hatred issue. I don't have a self-hatred issue. <laughs> I have a truth issue. <laughs> uh, that's the best I can do on that one. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, so as you're talking about that, I, I just feel fear. Yeah. Um, and, and there was a time when I was really excited about that. About that, what? About... Um, concepts that you're, things you're talking about, the, the void. And, yeah, the void. Uh-huh. And union and, and it seems like um, there was a striving and it feels like my, I've had to come back to my edge, which is uh, an emotional kind of feeling resistance in the body. And um, And so I guess my question is somewhere around, am I protecting myself by staying there? I I, I can't. His question is, uh, he was at one point drawn to the void, but um, there's a lot of fear. And in order to work and manage with that fear, he's come back into his body, into the edge, which is smart. That's wise. And to work with that fear as on the edge with your body sensation, right? And then the wrong question was the next thing you said, which is, <laughs> is that the right thing for me to do? 
because I have no idea. No one, no teacher has the right idea for that. You have the right idea for yourself. And it, it depends. Feels right. Pardon? It feels right. There you go. You see, within the question, there already was the answer for you. And what I want to do, if I can do of anything of service to you, is to show you that your answers are there for you. Because you can't rely on a teacher. They're not reliable. They don't know you like you know you. <laughs> I I've, stay away from any psychic powers that allow me to know your thoughts. I don't want to know your thoughts. I don't even want to know my thoughts. <laughs> Why would I want to know people's thoughts? <laughs> but some people do. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why anyone would want to mess around anyone's life. Because these things do occur. That's the thing. As the veil, as you get quieter, you start picking up stuff. No, you do. And there was a period of time that is no longer in which I would know what was going on in people. And they wouldn't have to open their mouth. I don't want to do that. First of all, it's your privacy. Why am I, why, why am I coming in and looking at what you don't even want to share. <laughs> I don't have any interest in that. But it is available. And all the different magical tricks are available to you. It's just, it's just at some point of quietude that becomes available. <clears throat> but it sounds like an arrogant statement. To the sincere seeker, which I feel I am, that's just... You just, just, let's just go straight, right? I'm just going straight here, and that's not part of the straightness. That's a detour, and it's, it's inconsiderate. I don't know how else to say it. It doesn't fit my awakened value of allowing a person to be private if they want to, you know. I don't know, but anyway, it comes in. And with a lot of, and sometimes I can't, I know the next thing you're going to say before you say it, but I let you say it. <laughs> so, anyway, okay. So, where was I? Was there a question in there somewhere? <laughs> Who was the last person around? <laughs> you did? Okay, okay, so did I answer you? <laughs> okay. That's the effect of Benadryl on your mind. <laughs> Any other questions? <laughs> yeah. So how does the void relate to love? Because it just, the word void doesn't sound like love. No, uh, uh, think of it as... as um, some uh, one teacher called it uh, like endless potential. It's before manifestation of even awareness. Awareness is the first expression of it, and because it is completely unconditional, awareness, the first expression of it, is completely still. Uh, so it everything gives it gives birth to all. It gives birth to everything. Everything comes out of that, including love. So prior to love is the void. I can't say anything else about it. You know, there's just either my mind doesn't can't go there because it's birthing my mind, and so I can sense I can sense it as a. It's for me, but people experience it differently. I experience it as this darkness, and when I look at myself in relationship to it, I'm I'm absolutely nothing. I'm like totally wind blows through me. There's nothing there. You know that's. But it's giving rise to that, and from that th thoughts, and then and then it's like you know. So that's what I call the dead center of now. See, we hover around now, but we like a moth. 
But dead center of now we avoid. Because a dead center of now doesn't hold any formation. And so what, what's the first circle around the dead center of now is awareness. So I'll go there because that's kind of nice. And I get to see oneness and I get a different expression of life and it's not struggling. And it's beautifully encompassing. And the rules of the game are inclusion and that's what fits where I want to go and friendliness and love and, you know, so I'll play there. But that's just, that's just a millim- a micron or whatever the smallest, around the center of now. The center of now is voice. <clears throat> And then there's concentric circles after that where consciousness forms itself, ever-increasing dependency on form, and therefore thought, and therefore struggle. So as we get further and further outside the center of now, that's where the whole thing builds upon itself. Until you're out so far outside the now that you don't even reference the now, and that's what typically a mind does. Because if it referenced now, it would see its own emptiness. So it has to stay busy creating time to keep itself out of being empty and void and into the void, you see. So we do it all time, at all times. Uh, so sometimes it's better to, it's easier to think of it in that way rather than uh, in the more complex Buddhist ways of thinking about it. It's just now in its full actuality. That's right. That's right. Um, and I, I think, but I, you can respond to, that you might agree that all of them taken to a basis for action are not equal in their harm or. Oh, absolutely action. not. No. And so, it, it, in context, then, it strikes me as interesting that you don't use the word liberation very much. And is that related to the sort of proximity of that word or the relationship of that word to suffering and like in a sense you're holding this in this kind of absolute awareness so close to the center of now that like to me when I think of an awakened value I think very much of liberation. Right, (laughs) that's a word Narayan uses a lot and I have no problem with it whatsoever. I'm just curious if if it doesn't resonate for you in this framework or I I just, I don't there's nothing wrong with the word, it's just I choose other um, yeah, she's just asking about my not using the word liberation and wondering why, basically. And I, I use the word freedom and I use stillness is my word of choice because I think it points more towards what liberation is. Liberation is it can be a, you know, it's, it sounds like you're being liberated from something. And stillness isn't an alternative to something. It's an inclusivity of everything. So I just, I prefer those kind of words. I actually just made that up as I was talking, so I don't really, (laughs) that's not why I actually chose the word. But it makes sense now that I said it. So I don't really have, it's not a preference. I don't have a preference. You can use it and it's fine with me. There are some words that are so rigid in their history that we don't get, we can't refresh them because they've been coded with 2,500 years of layers and commentary and, oh. Okay, so the new book, the, the, uh, Touching the Infinite, takes a sequence, four foundations of mindfulness, you know. And you go, why well, don't I know that? First foundation by second foundation of feeling, and third foundation. Okay. So I gave like 40 talks 
<laughs> one two-year period of time. And I woke up complete, to a complete different way that that series works, the four foundations. But you know what I never did? I never read the commentaries. I never read, I mean, I know what the, the sutta, there's a Satipatthana sutta, I read that, but I never lost myself in the 2,500 years of argument about what that meant. And I really think <laughs> that it refreshed my ability to see it new. And to me, the way that it sequences together has liberation rather than just periods of areas of mindfulness to, to grow your mindfulness in or whatever. So you can do that. With a Buddhist teaching, you can make it contemporary to your understanding, to your realization. And it needs to grow like that. As I was mentioning to one person uh, today, you know, he says, well, how come Theravadan never talks about formlessness? Well, I said, you know, that came when Mahayana separated from the Theravadan tradition and from my point of view, so I don't want to get into an argument with some of you scholars, which there are many. When that broke off, it was because of all the years of, of growth that occurred and insights that occurred around the Buddhist teaching. And this was a new layer, a new growth of the Buddhist teaching. You think the Buddhist teachings just become the same thing? You know, it never grew, it has not been renewed. It's been renewed by everybody who's ever seen it. So to me, the Mahayana expression is, is, an, is a valued addition to it. So that's all. And then I don't know enough about the Tibetan to know whether that's a valued thing, but I do know enough about the Mahayana to, you know, and, and, and I think, well, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an up-level of, of the whole thing. It makes complete sense that the Buddha didn't have the final answer of even his own... I know that's like the most sacred, sacrilegious thing one can say in front of him. <laughs> but that's, my, that's really what I believe. Yes. Are you a scholar? No. <laughs> Well, you can feel free from suffering at any of these different levels of consciousness. I mean, the, subtle, the subtlety of self is so small at that level that, the, that whatever struggle is occurring is negligible, barely negligible. By falling into the hole, hole of the void? <laughs> what kind of buck you gonna get from that? <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe you wanna go there. Most people are, it, it's not their first choice, right? So maybe love is their first choice. So there's a level of consciousness in which love is at play more obvious than this one. And so they frolic there for a while and and then I suppose that there's a boredom there somehow. And then you just, you can play along, and there are countless, endless levels of consciousness on which you can play. The question then to someone who is interested in truth is, are conscious levels truths themselves, or are they arising out of the truth? And all of these different levels are arising out of the void, which is the truth. And so... 
For some people, the truth holds such a um, such an allure, for lack of a better word, that they're willing to give. I feel that about me. I don't really care. I do, it's fine to fall in, but I don't expect anything from it. I mean, there's no prize at the end of it. It's, a, it's the ultimate death. Right? Because there's no payoff. <laughs> Every other level of consciousness has a payoff. <laughs> but the absence of identity doesn't have a payoff. It's just true. That's all. And true has... It's not a payoff. It's just true. <laughs> See? So I'm not discouraging or encouraging it. Go there if you uh, and know what you're, you know. Yeah, go. I don't know. Don't go. I don't care. <laughs> and it's, and, oh, yeah, never mind. That's a good, okay, that's enough for tonight. <laughs> Thank you all. Maybe we can be quiet for a minute, huh? <laughs> I just want to <clears throat> interrupt the bell for one last thing because I think it was an, it was an important point. And that is um, the reason my words might sound like you've never heard them before is because they're my words. They're words I placed upon the experiences I had. I didn't rely on the words that preceded me to explain my experience because the preceding words had their own context and their own investment, all of them, dukkha, all of them. So I needed a clean slate because it needed to be refreshed for me. I need, and I need to see from different angles. And different angles, like talking about con- different levels of consciousness, or talking about now and the center of now, those are all me. I'm just, you know, I'm just talking words that make complete sense given the context of how I'm exploring them. And so it sounds new, because it is. It's just, you know, I'm just using different words, but I'm not going to be able and never will or no, have no desire to go back and dig up old words. I'd rather leave them dead. And start to do this thing. This thing is, refreshes itself. It's got to refresh itself, for God's sake. Dust, dust, dust us off, please. That's my plea. Dust us off here so we can see anew. Okay, y'all. <laughs>